Alright students, let's have Lecture 15, Introduction to Homer's Odyssey, Books 18 to 21, Slides 268 to 287, today. Now, recall that Odysseus had just in the disguise, uh, in disguise as a beggar called Iphon from Crete, the brother of Idomeneus and grandson to Mekinos, had an interview with Penelope. And we have talked about some of the themes of this conversation. Why is it uh, that uh, this Iphon asked to come at night? Well, he says... He wants to come at night in order that the suitors not make fun of him. But then, uh, why is it that Penelope tells him about the stratagem of the shroud that she made for Laertes? Why is she revealing this piece of information to him? And then, multiple times, she cries right in front of him. And um, even after his bath, she will tell him about this very peculiar dream that she had. This dream about 20 geese that are killed by an eagle. And I'll mention that later. But why is she revealing these intimate, intricate details to this beggar who is right across from her. Is this her um, honoring the Zinnia by being a good conversationalist? Or is there some uh, hint, is there some glimmer in this beggar that suggests to Penelope that he is potentially Odysseus? This is a question that we had before Odysseus was sent to have a bath. And recall that sometimes after he has a bath, he looks much finer. And uh, in fact, it looks very different to those in front of him. Recall that Nausicaa, when she first saw him, he looked sort of like a barbarian, covered himself with a leaf and salty brine and leaves in his hair, and he looked like a monster, a barbarian, essentially. But then after he had his shower, she all of a sudden was thinking, wow, he might be a nice guy to marry at some point. In fact, so much did she think about marriage with him that she did not want to be made fun of for wishing to marry him by accompanying him through the city of the Five Kings. And so Odysseus is about to have a bath, and recall, he sort of oddly asked for an old woman to bathe him, which um, makes sense in that an old woman obviously will not make fun of him in the same way that Melantho and the serving maids will. But the uh, odd thing about that choice is that he has this very peculiar scar on his knee, like Albus Dumbledore from Harry Potter, who has a scar of the London Underground on his knee, a map of the, under the London Underground on his knee. It's almost like uh, the scars on your body are some sort of identifying feature that helps people to uh, understand the connection between uh, your body and who you actually are. Uh, defining features, as it were. In any case, Eurycleia comes to bathe Odysseus. She knew him when he was young. She knows about this scar. He tries to hide the scar from her, but he fails to hide the scar from her. One uh, interesting note that I liked before this is, uh, well, two notes. One is, the moment she sees Ithon, she says, you look just like Odysseus would look. Had he, uh, uh, had he the, you, or rather, you look just like he would look if he were the same age you were, if he were still around. And uh, Odysseus says, everybody who meets me says that. But then the second sort of interesting thing, thing is that he's so pathetic looking that Yorkley actually cries. Because she, uh, he reminds her of how Odysseus would look if he had had a very difficult and sort of pathetic life like this beggar. And, uh, well, that will be, uh, she will be sort of rewarded for those tears very soon. In any case, Eurycleia sees the scar. And then in one of these interesting narrative techniques, as you've noticed in um, the Odyssey, it is a more complex narrative than the Iliad. The Iliad just sort of goes... Ordinarily. It goes chronologically. It goes from one event to the other. Very standard sort of narrative. But whereas in the Odyssey, we sort of jump around. Recall that Odysseus, he gets, uh, once he gets to the five Keans, he tells them a story. He tells them a story about the past, and then we have to jump back into the present. That's essentially books 9 to 13. Well, here we have one of those narrative interludes where we jump into a memory. We see the scar, and then Euryclea remembers the story 
of the scar, the scar, and that is shared with us in order to sort of create this feeling of anticipation within us. We want to see how she reacts to the scar. We don't necessarily want to know the story of the scar, and yet here is the story of the scar. Eurycleo brought Odysseus to his maternal grandfather, that means the grandfather who is the father of his mother, Autolycus. And Autolycus means wolf self. And Autolycus, something about him is that he's a very famous thief who brought displeasure and distaste to those around him. He was a master thief who was the son of Hermes, and so on uh, Odysseus's mother's side, he is a, uh, a progeny of Hermes. Very interesting. Uh, some scholars write that Hermes and Athena are essentially the gods that help Odysseus, and they certainly are the gods that help Odysseus during the course of the Odyssey. Hermes giving him the moly that keeps it from transforming on Circe's island, and Athena several times helping him out amongst the Phaeacians, on Olympus with Zeus, and then again in Ithaca, and she will help him again. Um, now, this maternal grandfather, Autolycus, at the birth of Odysseus, has the opportunity to name him. And he names him Odysseus, which some people think is a foreign name to the ancient Greeks. Not technically an ancient Greek name, but it comes, we think, from a verb that is something like odusai, which means something to be hateful or to be distasteful. The idea being that uh, uh, Odysseus, like a, a barbed plant, will be distasteful to any who tries to eat him. Any who tries to compete with him, who tries to fight against him, will find him hateful because he is an awful competitor or awful opponent to have. And uh, that seems true so far. The suitors will soon find that out. A cyclops knows that well, and the Cacones and certainly the Trojans know that. Um, in any case, when he grows up, Autolycus says, have him sent to me at Mount Parnassus, and I will give him his due. And so, little montage, Odysseus grows up and goes to visit Autolycus to collect. Now, while with Autolycus, his, gra his grandfather, and the sons of Autolycus, his uncles, they go out on a hunt. And hunts are, uh, we'll see multiple hunts throughout these ancient epics. We'll see a very, very, very provocative hunt in Book 4 of the Aeneid, where some... Uh, uh, Dangerous liaison-like things happen between a queen, Dido, an African queen, and a, a European man, Aeneas. The same Aeneas that we knew from the Iliad. In any case, on this hunt, the dogs discover the boar in a deep bush, a dark lair. It's a boar hunt. And remember, boars have tusks, and therefore boars are dangerous. In fact, uh, Robert Baratheon, a character from Game of Thrones, is killed by a boar during a hunt. In any case, Odysseus rushed in. But before he can stab, the boar slices him right above the knee, leaves that scar forever. But he stabs it dead. Perhaps this is itself a metaphor for the life Odysseus will have to live. One in which he receives ultimate glory, but has to suffer consequences because of it. Has to pay the price for it. And in any case, that's something we can talk about in seminar. The sons of Autolycus then sing incantations and tend to the wound. I always think that's so interesting that they sing incantations. But then, that should make perfect sense to you, because when you're gushing blood from a, a wound, you need to have your heart rate go down, because when your heart rate goes down, you produce, or you pump out less blood. One way to uh, calm you down is the way that mothers calm down children, often by humming or singing to them. <laughs> sort of puts you in a calm, relaxed state. And so, uh, it's not necessarily that these people believe in magic so much as they are calming Odysseus down in order to heal him. All that said, there will be a terrible scar above his knee for the remainder of his life by which he can be identified, which makes him sort of an imperfect Scott, uh, spy here. Eurycleia sees this scar, and she is so shocked 
by seeing the scar that she drops the water basin she is using to uh, clean Odysseus and, and in surprise and happiness. And now a very dynamic move by Odysseus. He immediately reaches out his hand, grasps her by the throat in order to keep her from saying more because Penelope is very, very close to them. In some artistic representations, she is in a room adjoined to this room, not watching, obviously. It would be sort of inappropriate for her to watch some beggar get washed by an old lady, her serving woman. But um, in some artistic representations, she's very, very close. In fact, if I just go back to one over here, like she's like an inch away. That's obviously not quite right. But in any case, Eurycle uh, needs to be quiet. If she's not quiet, she will summon Penelope. Penelope will ask questions. She'll potentially see the scar. And Odysseus's plans will all be for naught because Penelope will have recognized him for who he is, and he won't be able to secretly go through with his plot to finish the suitors and then reveal himself to Penelope. All right, so he grabs her by the throat to silence her. And then he, he eases up a little, and she says, I can, I can help you, Odysseus. I'm still loyal to you. I can tell you which maids are loyal to you and which ones have lain with the suitors and are now disloyal to you, of which there are a 10, I think maybe 11. 11 out of 50? Uh, we'll see the exact number soon. In any case... Odysseus says, I can do that myself. Keep silent. Though, it will be the case that Eurycleia actually does share this knowledge with Odysseus after he has uh, done what he must do with the suitors. Uh, that dance is yet to come, however. And this is a beautiful picture. I think this is rather nice. You see Eurycleia here uh, bathing the, the feet of this terrible beggar, sort of, which will later be inverted in the Christian tradition by, like, say, Jesus. Uh, cleaning the feet of a beggar, and, you know, a beggar who doesn't have shoes, their feet are particularly, uh, we would say in California, gnarly, um, but rather dirty, and so this is a very humble sort of thing to be doing. That said, this man who looks like a beggar is actually her king, and uh, there are some interesting uh, social ramifications for that. Uh, uh, are all people equal? Is there an idea behind there? Is everybody in some way a king? Perhaps, perhaps not. In any case, in democracies like ours, we do believe that. Uh, is this a suggestion at that? Perhaps. Maybe we'll have to talk about that during seminar. In any case, Odysseus has had his dream. Or, excuse me, he has had his bath. And now he returns to the place he was sitting in front of Penelope, now looking somewhat better, but still very much in disguise. And now she decides to reveal to him, again, one of these intimate details. Just like the stratagem of the web that I mentioned earlier, she reveals that she's had a dream. And this dream... Uh, remember, dreams are always significant in literature, as well as in the ancient tradition. You'll see three significant dreams in Dante next year, and we saw several significant dreams in the Iliad, um, and have seen them in the Odyssey so far. In the Iliad, remember Agamemnon's dream as early as Book 2, which was a lying dream to him. Uh, remember also Achilleus' dream in Book 23, where Patroclus shows up to him and asks that they both be, have their uh, bones buried together in the same um, amphora, or urn. We would call it. And so Penelope has perhaps the easiest dream ever to interpret. There are 20 geese. She has them. She's sort of like Princess Jasmine within her menagerie, if you've seen Aladdin or the new Aladdin. An eagle then comes down and breaks the necks of all 20 of these uh, geese. The eagle then says, I am Odysseus, and those were the suitors. And then Penelope asks, what do you think this dream means? Uh, beggar, and he says, oh, well, <laughs> I'm no dream interpreter, but it sounds like the eagle is Odysseus, and the geese are the suitors. Now, one interesting thing about the, uh, the geese and the fact that they die, in the dream, Penelope cries when the geese die, and I've often wondered why that is. 
Now, sometimes people, I think, erroneously think, well, does that mean that she has some affection for the suitors? And I think the answer is uh, clearly no. Um, the reason that she's crying, I think, is one of two. Either A, the death of those suitors represents the death of her youth. She's getting old now. And she hasn't had her husband around. And so now, uh, 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 as they die, a time of her life dies with her. Perhaps a, a weaker interpretation than maybe the stronger one, which is this. She just doesn't like it when people die in front of her. Anybody dying can potentially make her sad. Sort of part of her, uh, her femininity as represented by Homer. Death itself is unpleasant to her. Um, though uh, the deaths of these particular people, I think if she thinks about it for a couple seconds, she'll appreciate it, especially given the fact that they're trying to kill her son and husband. Um, but that, that is just an interesting little detail. It makes it very difficult to interpret things uh, perfectly clearly. Perhaps that is the sort of narrative detail that makes good literature so much like life. Everything doesn't make sense all at once. In any case, hmm. Penelope then disagrees with Odysseus. Oh, stranger. Oh, Iphon. Oh, beggar. There are two gates from which dreams come. We will see these gates again this year, in fact, in book six. Down in the underworld of the Aeneid, the Roman underworld, these gates will exist. And actually, Aeneas will find himself going out of the gate of ivory. And so the two gates that Penelope mentions here are the gates of horn, which is like bone, and in this case, we should consider it like dark bone. It's like a black gate. And the gate of ivory, like the pearly gates that people talk about with heaven, uh, the white cloudy gates. And um, so the gate of horn, which looks so foreboding, it's like when you come to a, uh, a split in the road in a, <laughs> in a forest, and one way is full of cobwebs and dark and scary, and you can see red eyes in the distance, and one looks very pleasant, and there's maybe like a harp playing alongside it. Well, the idea is this, the gate of horn, which looks so foreboding, out from it come true dreams. And so the idea is that perhaps if you look at the suffering of life or the difficulties of life or those things which uh, make life uh, rough, um, those are the true parts of life. Because the gate of ivory, which is so beautiful, so, so siren-like and so enticing, it, it encourages you to look at the good things in life, just the sweet things, the popcorn, the candy, the unicorns, which are... Not really a part of life because they're not really real. Um, uh, the gate of ivory sends false dreams. And so one very popular way to interpret this is that these are different ways of looking at reality. The way of looking at uh, reality through the gate of ivory is like how the suitors do. Life is just good, and it doesn't matter what you do. And you get everything you want. That has been true for them so far. It will soon not be true for them. Whereas the gate of horn is far more like how Telemachus and Odysseus look at the world. You have to endure suffering in order to actually get what you want. You don't just get what you want for doing nothing. This is, uh, I, I would say, the mature perspective that is very difficult for educators as well as adults to teach to young people uh, who receive so much for free and think that it will always be that way. It certainly will not. Um, that is the very idea behind uh, Harry Potter having to conjure his own Patronus but thinking that his father had conjured it. That is the very idea behind Santa Claus. That is the very idea behind many of our Western uh, religions. You receive so much, not so that you receive forever, but that you someday do what instead? Give. That's right. That you give charity even greater than that which you have received. That you, like Hector's son, rise up not to the level of Hector, but greater than Hector. Though sadly, of course, his uh, son did not have that opportunity either because of, uh, bless you, Odysseus or um, Neoptolemus. All right.
Here's some beautiful images. If you want to have a nice day, you can look up images of the gates of horn and ivory. I would say that I agree with this. These are two differing perspectives on the world. One is a childish perspective. One is an adult perspective. You must go through pain and suffering to get to your own Ithaca in this world, should you get to Ithaca. Unless your Ithaca is in the imagination, which you can live in now. But that, what? how is that life any better than a life where you're either just consuming lotus constantly or where you're just listening to the sirens until you die. What do you accomplish in such a life? Hmm. All right, review. Dream of Penelope. 20 geese killed by eagle. Eagle calls self. Odysseus, geese are suitors. Ithon agrees with interpretation. Penelope describes gates of horn and ivory. Uh, Penelope comes up with the idea. Ah, yes, yes. Here we go. And now, so, did, so we've been waiting for this. Uh, this kind of funny picture. I'll show it to you in a second. After Penelope shares her dream, she says, it's time for me to think of a way to marry one of these suitors. They have figured out my strategy to uh, uh, unweave what I've been weaving every day for three years, and now they demand a decision from me. Well, I don't want to give them just a straight-up decision. They need to prove something to me. They've given me some gifts, but I need to see that they're strong and accurate, that they can achieve their aims. And so this is what's going to happen. Odysseus left a bow that he received from a guest friend long ago, a guest friend who would then later be killed by Heracles, who Odysseus did not get to see again, and a bow that meant so much to Odysseus that he didn't take it to Troy. You say, well, why, why would that mean that the bow meant a lot to him? Well, he could have been killed at Troy, and when you're killed at Troy in battle, often your armor and your weapons are stripped from you and taken from you. So this was something so valuable, he would not take it um, out of his home. It's sort of like, you know, when you have like a very valuable like toy or something, and you don't take it to school because you know your friend is going to steal it, um, or one of those sophomores. In any case, this is the first part of the test. Somebody just has to string the bow of Odysseus. Now, that's sort of a hard thing to do. The bow is made supposedly of horn, which is bone. You have to take it from straight, bend it. I think I have a picture of something like that around here somewhere. There we go. Yeah, there we go. Rigid and strung. You have to like bend it way back and take uh, the string from one uh, edge and put it onto, or one tip of the bow onto the other. Very difficult thing to do. You've got to be pretty uh, strong. Now, the second thing that's going to happen is uh, remarkable. Twelve axes with holes either in their handles or in a loop at the bottom of them. It depends on how they're shown. Probably not like this with Mickey and Donald beneath and, uh, and a laptop and uh, all these other anachronistic features. Um, but, um, Twelve of these axes will be set in a line, and after stringing the bow, the archer will have to shoot an arrow through all twelve of the holes in the axes without touching a single one of them. It's one of these great mythological tests that be seemingly impossible in reality, but not impossible for the true hero. Not like the person who is supposed to pick up the sword and the stone or wield the great hammer, Mjolnir. Um, something that somebody who is destined must do. Pulling the golden bow, which we'll talk about soon enough. All right. And so, that's what's going to happen this very next day. So hopefully Odysseus can get his hand on the bow. Hopefully he's still strong enough to string the bow. Hopefully he's still accurate enough to shoot through the bow. Remember that he's, he's a very talented wrestler as well as archer. In fact, he says that there is only one archer. And recall, he said this to the five kids when he was rather upset with Laodamus and Euryalus. Uh, he said there was only one archer, Philoctetes, who was the best archer of the uh, Achaeans, who surpassed him in skill, and so we'll have to see whether he's a better archer than these punk suitors who have uh, very rarely shot bows and arrows over the past few years.
In any case. Athena. Did I have a slide before this? Apparently not. In any case, Athena reassures Odysseus that her help will be more than enough for him. So just as Telemachus was experiencing doubts when he and Odysseus together were moving the weapons out of the Great Hall, um, and, uh, Od and Telemachus was wondering, how can, we, how can we defeat so great a foe, so many people? And Odysseus was like, shh, the gods will be quite enough. And recall, this was also a doubt that, put, that Telemachus had when they were first talking in the hut of Eumaeus. Well, now apparently Odysseus, he's having trouble sleeping during this night. Um, he hears Penelope also sort of wrestling in her sleep, and she's even calling Odysseus' name, and then he thinks for a moment that he's actually been outed, that she knows that it is he, Odysseus, and perhaps this is also, again, evidence that she does know that this beggar who is sleeping so near her is Odysseus. And yet, uh, Odysseus realizes that she's just having a dream. She's dreaming of seeing him, which makes it all the sadder. We would say in literary circles that that's great pathos, and he again hears her calling out his name, and she is so close, and yet we say so far, because it is not part of the plan for him to go comfort her, yet she must endure this pain in order to have the pleasure of seeing him uh, again. And uh, yeah, and yet again, this constant theme, another portent, thunder cracks through the air, and if thunder cracks through the air, the thunder gatherer, the storm gatherer, Zeus, must be on the move. Something is happening, something is in the air, things are getting electric, a storm is brewing, that storm is coming for the suitors. In any case, Melanthius then shows up to insult Odysseus and Eumaeus. Oh, that's why. That's why. Oh, yeah, I'm putting the topics up there. Odysseus can't sleep. He's worried about the suitors. Yeah, yes. Now, the next day, Eumaeus and Ithon have a chance to converse. Recall that Ithon is, of course, the name of Odysseus that he gives to Penelope and all those around him. Uh, Melanthius then shows up to insult Odysseus and Eumaeus. Again, just as we have Melantho insult Odysseus two discrete times, we have Melanthius have two opportunities to insult Odysseus on the way to Ithaca, and then once he gets to Ithaca. And then we see uh, a slightly different individual. We see our third herdsman. So we know our swine herd, that's Eumaeus, good. We know our goat herd, that's Melanthius, bad. Now we meet our ox herd, Philoetius, sometimes called Felicius. Uh, who is also good. He offers his right hand to Odysseus. He shakes his hand, sort of like we still do, and welcomes Odysseus, beggar though he be. And he says something very kind to him. He says, oh, well, you know, Zeus causes dismal sufferings for all men. It's not necessarily your fault that you find yourself as a beggar without land and people at this time, because um, uh, we do not control our fates entirely, our destinies entirely as humans. Sometimes we just have to deal with what we get. And so I totally understand that I'm having a pretty good time over here as an ox herd, and you're having sort of a rough time over there as a beggar. But then Ithon to him predicts the homecoming of Odysseus. Again, more and more and more and more signs that Odysseus has returned, and as we know as the readers, somewhat omniscient in this moment, Odysseus obviously has returned. So those signs are correct. So we then shift to the suitors. And Amphinomus predicts their failure based on the portent. There's a yet another portent scene. So just as uh, Penelope had, in her dream, seen an eagle attack 20 geese, so do the suitors now literally see an eagle fly through the sky. An eagle as if it represents Odysseus, as if it represents their death from something flying, like arrows that will soon come towards them. And so, again, mounting more and more thunder 
and praying against the suitors and eagle portents. And they even burst into crazy laughter in front of Theoclimenus. And he, pred- he predicts, well, man, this laughter is the laughter of dead men. Huh. Over and over again, the signs are pointing to these suitors are going to die. The suitors are amazed by this. Well, then we have our third outrage towards Odysseus. Just as we've had Antinous throw a footstool at Odysseus, just as we've had Eurymachus throw a footstool at Odysseus, now we have a guy named Tessipos throw an ox hoof at Ithon, Odysseus as a guest gift. Luckily, however, this, um, this ox hoof, uh, Odysseus ducks, and it hits a serving person. and creates quite a clatter on the ground. And then Telemachus says, you're lucky that you missed. Because had you hit Odysseus, or had that would be a big faux pas, uh, had you hit that beggar who is under my protection, I would have run you through with a spear for such an unforgivable act. Yeah, well, pretty impressive words from Telemachus there. He'll have to uh, back them up very soon. Well, in any case, Eurymachus and the suitors, not paying attention to the portent, though probably feeling a, a deep, welling feel, feeling of uh, foreboding within their souls, continue to attempt to make fun of and make light of Telemachus. Don't worry, he'll be getting the last laugh very, very, very soon. All right, Penelope descends and enacts and introduces the contest of the bow. You must string the bow. Then you must shoot the arrow through 12 axe handles, which are linearly, linearly lined up in front of each other. Good luck, and uh, probably none of you is equal to Odysseus in strength. So, the axes are buried into the ground, either hilt first or axe head first. However, the holes are to be uh, uh, placed in front of each other so that all 12 are in a line. And then Telemachus gets the first crack. Now, obviously, uh, what is on the line is Penelope. He's not trying to marry his mother. But if he can um, effectively or uh, uh, correctly... Uh, I'll say effectively. If he can effectively string the bow uh, of his father, then the suitors will leave, and his mother will be under his protection. Now, he tries to string the bow once. Uh, fails. Tries, tries to string it twice. Uh, gets a little bit closer. Stri- tries a third time. Ah, uh, he's almost there. And on the fourth time, he would have strung it. He is almost as strong as his father. He has really developed as a, an adult, as a man. And, uh, but he looks at his father as he's doing this, and his dad gives him a look, a look that's kind of like, like shaking his head, like, no, don't do it. That'll mess up our plan. So even though Telemachus could prove himself in front of all these suitors, he has to stay humble, and he doesn't string the bow. He has to give up and say, oh, I'm not quite strong enough, even though he is, very Odyssean moment of his. And then, we have the first suitor try. His name is Leotis. He does not come close. In fact, it describes him as ruining his uncalloused hands. He tears his hands up. And then he, he actually uh, he goes to sit down and he says very sadly that the worst part about this is to wake up every day and to, to wish that you could marry Penelope just to have your hopes dashed. After three hard years, sort of like, and I think it's very sad, like the idea of being a freshman in high school and wanting to get into college in four years, and then in four years you apply to ten places and you don't get into any of them. That's a very sad moment. It casts up, it said, it kind of makes you think, what have you been doing with yourself over the past few years? Have you wasted all this time? What could you have done that would have been better for this moment? So try your best at all times so that you don't uh, have to live like a Leotes. Sad to have his hopes dashed. 
Well, Antinous then sees what's happening uh, with this bow and realizes, hmm, this is going to be a little bit hard to uh, straighten. So what we need to do is uh, heat it to make it a little more malleable, more pliant, more flexible, easier to bend, and uh, then rub it with fat. And uh, even after doing that, even after attempting to cheat, the suitors still continue to fail. Uh, something interesting I'll note about that is that Odysseus will get this bow into his hands after it has been heated and had fat rubbed on it. So I wonder if it is easier for him to string it than it was for Telemachus, precisely because it's been heated in that way. That's uh, a, a detail that's not often mentioned. In any case, while the suitors are still messing about with this bow and attempting this contest, which uh, they will never, ever win, Odysseus goes to Philoetius and Eumaeus and asks them a question. He says, huh, if you guys were to see Odysseus again, would that make you happy or sad? And they're like, oh my gosh, we'd be stoked out of our minds. We'd be totally happy. We love Odysseus. We hate these suitors. We wish he could come back and do justice to them. And Odysseus then pulls up his tunic uh, and shows them the scar on his knee, right above his knee, and says, I'm Odysseus, by the way. Suckers. And they're like, oh, wow, cool. Uh, we'll definitely help you out. And he's like, okay, good, because I need some help, because it's you, me, Telemachus, uh, and uh, so there are four of us. But supposedly Athena and Zeus are going to help us as well. We might as well die on the side of justice. Um, they are super happy to see their lord reserve, uh, return. They are very happy to see Odysseus they embrace. They are willing to help him fight against the suitors. Odysseus has effectively doubled his fighting force against the suitors. So now it's four against 108. The odds have gotten better. Um, so, good for them. Good for them. Now, we get to one of the main suitors, Eurymachus, one of our two leaders. He now attempts to string the bow. We all get nervous. We're like, oh man, Eurymachus, he looks pretty tough, even though we don't like him very much. And he tries to string the bow, and ah, 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 he fails. He fails, he fails, he fails. And now, he's very sad about this too, and he mentions it. Um, but he's sad for a different reason from Leodes. Leodes is very sad because... He's, he says, to, to come here year after year, day after day, just to fail in one moment is a terrible thing. Well, Eurymachus says, I'm not so sad about losing Penelope. There are a lot of women in, in the cup. There are a lot of fish in the sea is basically his perspective. Uh, he takes a good perspective on that. He says, there are a lot of remarkable women on these islands. It's not so much losing Penelope. What, what really strikes at my heart as Eurymachus is how much weaker I am than Odysseus. The suitors in this moment are starting to realize that as a generation, they do not stand up to scrutiny. They do not, uh, they are not as strong as the Trojan War generation, the generation of their fathers. They are lesser men, objectively measured by competition. Um, and that is something that is hitting Eurymachus like a ton of bricks, almost like a spear in the back or an arrow in the throat, which he will soon physically have the opportunity to feel. In any case, Antinous then says... Antinous then says, oh, don't worry about that sort of thing, Eurymachus. And then he, Penelope, and Telemachus have a debate. Can the beggar have a shot? Now, Antinous is of the perspective, absolutely not. Because A, if the beggar make, somehow strings his bow and then shoots it through, uh, shoots an arrow through these axes, that will be humiliating to the suitors. And what's the point of us being humiliated by this beggar if Penelope's not even going to marry? Uh, him. And Penelope says, well, I can at least give him a mantle and a tunic. And Telemachus eventually says, well, listen, actually, Mom, this is my decision. I need you to go upstairs. Recall that he needs her to go upstairs so that he can get to killing with Odysseus and she's not present. And uh, 
And, uh, yeah, we'll give the bow to this beggar. And so uh, uh, we see Telemachus, his will being done rather than the leaders of the students. is one of the first times. It's a very remarkable moment for him. It's like he's actually become not only an adult, but become a leader in this moment. He's taking control of his house uh, before he physically, violently takes control of his house. And, well, Telemachus wins this debate. He sends Penelope, his mother, upstairs. Then, in, uh, in that moment, Eumaeus goes over to Eurycleia. He says, bar the doors. Odysseus then strings the bow with ease, shoots through the twelve axes, and everybody is totally shocked. And look at those suitors, too. I like the bald one with the mullet over to the right. You see that? I imagine this is Eurymachus. Definitely Eurymachus. Antinous and uh, Baldemachus. Uh, <laughs> And the first thing Odysseus does after shooting through these arrows is he takes aim at one of the suitors. He takes aim at one of the suitors who's had, had his fate a long time coming. And you know, I think, I think this moment, and I'll just show it to you very moment, I'll just show it to you here, is all the suitors together uh, sim in a symbol, in an image. What is happening while Odysseus works and struggles to... to to string this bow and then to shoot it accurately through these axes, Antinous is sitting there drinking, drinking another man's wine, the wine of the man who's struggling and working, the, the man who had to struggle even to make it home. And so Odysseus then aims his bow no longer at these axes, but at Antinous, the leader, whose name literally means against mind, or uh, which, as if his name is supposed to mean something like mindless. Um, and Odysseus takes a shot at uh, Antinous, and he shoots him right in the throat. Right in the throat, and blood spurts out. And his, his, his cup, his goblet, you can see it's two-handed there, so it's so big, it's an amphora. It falls to the ground, and he, he kicks out from under him the, a table full of food, which the food all falls to the ground, and so he's drinking while another man is working. He's wasting food. It's all a giant metaphor for him and the suitors themselves. They're all a waste. A waste of food, a waste of time, a waste of a generation. And he falls to the ground. And I think the most interesting part of this is that when the suitors all look around, they're all very shocked. They're like, oh my, oh my Zeus, what just happened? They say, that was a bad thing you did, uh, beggar. Uh, that was a very bad shot, very errant shot. And you'll pay dearly for that errant shot. They, they are so inaccurate that in their perception of things, they don't even realize what has happened right in front of them. They do not realize that it is in fact Odysseus in front of them. That he has intentionally shot Antinous. That they are under attack. That they are about to die. And that is where we will start our final lecture next time.